Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the albumreview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thank you for listening and thank you for your interactions and feedback. Believe it or not, your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. On today's episode, I'm welcoming back music enthusiast Joe Keats. Joe will join me for part two of a two-part review of Faith No More's 1992 album, Angel Dust. I invited Joe on the podcast because he is by far the biggest Faith No More fan I have ever met. So as I mentioned in the previous episode, Joe grew up in New Zealand, lived in Australia for a bit, and now resides in Singapore, where he splits his time as a wine guide for Peterson's Wine Singapore and as a music aficionado. And he's seen Faith No More in several countries around the world. And he's even met the band backstage by accident one night. Okay, before I get started, I'm reminding you that to listen to any of my podcast episodes, just go to albumreview.net and click on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. In addition to this, you can read well over 30 written reviews at albumreview.net and pick up some merchandise from your favorite bands, such as albums, t-shirts, sound systems, and you guys have got to check out the bookstore. Come on, do more reading. Stop watching TV. Do you want to learn more about your favorite musician or band that you can't find on the internet? Well, go to albumreview.net and click on the store tab. Right there, you can grab a copy of different biographies and autobiographies from such artists as Faith No More, Eric Clapton. I've also got the story of Spotify up there. Other artists include Motley Crue, Pink Floyd, Eddie Van Halen, Tom Petty, Metallica, and check out the books from the previous two authors that I interviewed on the albumreview.net podcast, Brian O'Connor and Ivan Bodley. Their books are amazing. You've got to check them out. All right, in the spirit of this band and my guest, Joe Keats, grab a glass of wine, sit back, relax, and listen to part two of this two-part album review of Faith No More's fourth studio album, Angel Dust. Um, Okay, going on to the next track, Kindergarten. I think this kind of keeps the pace with the majority of the album. It's heavy, great beat, strong rhythm, and... The song collaboration includes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but I think all five members of the band collaborated in writing this song, right? I think it seems obvious in the lyrics. This one is uh, cool, and actually Jim Martin wrote the guitar parts for it. Uh, But yeah, this one is a bit more Roddy Bottom. Cool, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of collaboration, I guess probably what I should have said was how they collaborated with their instruments on the, on the song. Right, so right. I think, um, I think, it, you know, the lyrics are interesting. Kingdom, kindergarten, born late. Will I graduate held back again? Do you think that that's the band writing about, you know, maybe a character again, or do you think that that's maybe written about somebody in particular? I'm not too sure. They're famously reticent to get too deep on their lyrics, but I thought it could be about the band's evolution like going into that second album. Are they trying to grow up a little bit? But for me, I remember point. when I first first heard it, probably my least favourite track on the first couple of listens. I thought it was a bit of a sort of gimmicky throwaway kind of song, but absolutely love it. Yeah, I don't know what it is that really 
really pulls me in on this song, but I, I suspect it might be just my thoughts of kindergarten as a kid, you know, a warm, happy place. And so when you can have those sort of happy memories with uh, that underlying sort of rhythm, I don't know, it's probably hitting a couple of different places in my brain at the same time. thinking about it earlier i kind of interpreted this song to be about a person who's growing physically but maybe still the same age mentally you know the the band members tell a story of of when the realization hits you that things will never be how they were in the past i don't know i, I like i was saying earlier i think i feel like every opportunity the band had to you know to avoid being serious in an interview they they took it so it was really difficult to get sort of a you know, a, a, a deep understanding of what they were really thinking when they wrote this one, but still interesting. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, it's mixed with Mike Patton singing kingdom kindergarten, but then he's kind of, you know, you could maybe say chanting or talking, or, you know, you could arguably say kind of rapping sort of. So it's just, once again, it's got like several genres all mixed into one song. Again, a, a type of song that you just didn't hear on a lot of albums in 92 or even today. Yeah, that, that groove in the bass, it just underpins the whole song as well. It helps sort of lighten it as well. So it's, again, all in one song, you've got the heavy and the dark, both with the lyrics, it's kind of a bounciness to the song, and then some heavy guitar coming in from Jim Martin as well. So yeah. it's a, sort of a bite size of the album all in one track, maybe. Yeah. For the, for the next song, Be Aggressive, the first thing that I could think of was Break out the Halloween decorations and the the, ma the, the mask from the movie Scream from this next track, uh, at least at the beginning. The, the song Be Aggressive starts out with an organ that has you looking over your shoulder to ensure no one broke into your house and is trying to come and kill you. Uh, now, this one's written by Roddy Bottom, and this track is strange, but it's direct and it's to the point. And in order to maintain a a clean or somewhat clean subject matter when Joe and I are talking about this song. Cause you know, the average uh, listener to the albumreview.net podcast is between the ages of four and seven. Let's just say that this <laughs> song, it's not about rooting your high school football team on with a crowd pleasing chant. No, 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 no. This song discusses perhaps some actions what do you say, Joe? Actions of affection taken on by... Uh, yeah, between two another? consenting adults. By two um, consenting adults, you know? Let's just say maybe both male who have a fondness for each other. 
Yeah, no, the, um, the fact that they're both male wasn't something that uh, the vast majority of people in the world uh, knew when the song was released. I can remember as a teenager just like giggling and thinking it was so naughty that this was clearly about a, a sexual act. But uh, later on, when Roddy came out as being gay, I thought, again, probably quite influential for me. I'm very pro um, people's rights, including gay rights. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know how much of that was uh, because of Roddy being in my favourite band and, and coming out as gay. But he, he is on record as saying that when he wrote the lyrics, he was laughing knowing that Mike Patton was going to have to sing them as a... <laughs> But I think he was underestimating Mike Patton. I don't think Mike Patton gives a hoot. I think he's more than happy to be uh, provocative and it would certainly get some people very, very uncomfortable. But Mike Patton, I don't think, has any problem singing these lyrics. And it I, is a great song live. I would agree with you. I would definitely agree with you. I think Patton could care less. And I really had a deeper respect for Roddy Bottom. I didn't know that either. And in 1992, let's just, let's just say it. It wasn't as... Um, it wasn't as safe to be out there, to be out of the closet and to, you know, admit to the world, especially when you were in, in the public eye that you were a gay person, which just seems so ridiculous to think of now, but it, it, it just wasn't, you know, he had yet to come out of the closet and exclaim his public pride. And today he's, you know, he's proud. And one has to wonder how he felt when he wrote be aggressive, you know, was he concerned he'd be ostracized by, coming out or was this kind of the beginning of his journey to well, finally it's not really coming out it's not, gender, it's not a gender specific song which is why i think myself and most other people didn't realize nobody was reading it closely enough to see that the songwriting was all um all roddy but yeah it's not a gender specific song in the lyrics but that was his intention on it was that it was man on man which is titled one of his later pieces of music as well um yeah. if you take away the the vocals off this and have a listen to it. It's almost poppy. Okay, you've got the synthesizers underneath, and it's, it's almost a pop song if you take away the the cheerleader chant. And, totally and agree. Mike's. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, again, kind of difficult to know. As many of the interviews that I watched with the band, they kind of lacked. I don't want to say sincerity, but just I couldn't really ever get a straight answer or see them give a straight answer in any of these interviews. So I suppose this mystique kind of enabled the band to keep their fans guessing. But I'll be honest, I was kind of like you, Joe. I was kind of naive. So <laughs> another radio-friendly track, somewhat, I think, comes, uh, comes at you next, A Small Victory. which offers a kind of a catchy verse and a catchy chorus. 
despite Patton's usual range of chanting and screaming. This one was written by Mike Patton as well, right, Joe? This one is arguably the most uh, team effort in terms of the, the songwriting itself. Um, it, it does have like you know, pretty much all their songs, Billy Gould's signature all over it. But yeah, they all helped compose this. Uh, this and Midlife Crisis probably had the most overall songwriting input from the band as a whole. Roddy called it the most radio-friendly song that they'd ever done. Um, really? Yeah. Now, the music execs, as I mentioned earlier, didn't necessarily agree, and they asked mockingly if the album should maybe be called Commercial Suicide when, <laughs> uh, when Roddy said, this is our radio-friendly song. Like this, this is what you want on high rotation. Um, but eventually, it did wind up being the one that the studio got behind in terms of releasing it as a single and spent a lot of money on the video for it, which is kind of an anti war video with weirdly some vampires and Mike Borden appearing as the Grim Reaper. Right. Um, the message in the video is too highbrow for me, I couldn't really follow it. They, when they did release the video for Everything's Ruined, there was basically no budget left. And Faith No More decided to take that to an extreme and do it under budget. So they just did the cheesiest video they could for Everything's Ruined. So if you have a look at the difference on that, there's like terrible green, skip, green screen on it. Um, they're jamming out, making fun of like metal bands. There'd be three of them, like thrashing back and forth with their guitars. The guitar <laughs> makes an appearance as well. <laughs> I think that that was their putting up the middle finger and retaliation to having maybe that overproduced music video to go along with a small victory. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I just, um, this one makes me wonder whether this could arguably the, be the album's strongest. It, it just makes me hum over and over and over again. And like I was saying, I listened to it yesterday when I was making breakfast and I had to go out and run a few errands and go to a couple shops around town. And I was catching myself saying, it shouldn't bother me, no, but it does. You know, so Parents back when I was a kid, yeah, I mean, seriously, <laughs> like, I'm going to end up in, I'm, I'm going to end up in, yeah, exactly. A cop's going to come up to me one day and be like, excuse me, sir, did I just hear you say something? Um, no, 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 no. I, I just listened to, I just listened to Faith No More. I promise it wasn't, it's not my words. I don't know. I just think this album is just so unique, like we were talking about earlier. So, so as the album starts to round out a little bit, we get to the song Crack Hitler. <laughs> It just, it just makes me, it just makes me laugh. Like when I was looking at the album cover and then when I flipped it over and when I opened the CD case and was reading the song titles, this is a, a mixture of Billy Gould's snappy funk bass line, Roddy Bottom's deeply rooted keys and Mike Patton's lyrics sounding as if he's yelling through a megaphone. Again, pretty unique, right?
as we start to round it out more, the song Jizzlobber reflects what music would sound like if someone was chasing you with a jungle style machete and a hockey mask on. Again, I relate it back to a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Faith, Faith the More, it's just, it, I think it's an acquired taste for sure. Angel Dust, Joe, I think it, it separates the men from the boys, from the, the casual fan you know, that got into them on their previous album, The Real Thing. Angel Dust either scared them all away or it hooked, it hooked you like it did me. And I'm sure like you as well. So, you know, most bands, if they do well, they have one good album, maybe two. And, you know, many bands catch lightning in a bottle and everyone's heard of this sophomore slump, right? One, I think, could consider Angel Dust the rebirth of the new Faith No More and maybe their sophomore album, even though it really wasn't. But in this case, they kick some sophomore ass with this record. And as I sit listening to the back half of this album, especially Jizzlobber, once again, this song takes you from evil creepiness to glory, glory, hallelujah. That's all I could think of. And as the track ends with an organ blasting through the halls of a giant church, you're reminded this ain't your grandfather's faith no more. I don't know. What do you think about some of those songs? Crack at the, is every bit as offensive and aggressive as the name would suggest. And when when the execs were saying we were not comfortable with the name Angel Dust for the album, they turned around and said, "Okay, then we'll name it Crack Hitler." Okay, yeah, Angel Dust is fine. They love to provoke, Leo. When um, when they went in to record this, Matt Wallace was really keen on no distortion whatsoever. And Mike Patton wasn't having a bar of that. And yeah, I think he did get out the loud hailer uh, on this one. The, uh, the producer had just purchased $20,000 microphones and he was devastated that they were just being put to that kind of use by Mike Patton. Right, but, right, uh, right, right. <laughs> he obviously had in his head the noise he wanted to put across that music and uh, he, he did his thing. And that's what they did through the whole album. They did what they wanted to do. They took you know, Matt Wallace's advice. I mean, yeah, cool, but we're still going to do our thing anyway. And then Jizzlobber, the only song on the album is basically all Jim Martin, so it was always going to be the heaviest, you know, had been the, the heaviest in his overtones. Um, but the lyrics are dark, the music's dark. I mentioned earlier, it's got the sampling from the Amazon on there. And I think on the original release, this, for me, it's kind of the end of the album because then you've got the instrumental at the end, the, the cover. Uh, later releases, of course, had Easy Tacked On. But for me, as an album closer, I thought it was just a great punctuation mark. It's funny you mentioned that, Joe. I was just going to go into that. If you own the standard release of Angel Dust, not the later remastered copy, the album ends with the uh, the theme song to the movie Midnight Cowboy. This track is titled simply just Midnight Cowboy. And this is a brilliant way to end the album.
but there is another version out there that actually ends with easy um which i did not own although i did own the uh, ep that i believe came out either before or after angel dust called songs to make love to and it had a picture of two rhinos well you get the rest mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy, it's 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 void of any lyrics, but it just soothes you right into a light, mellow, relaxing sleep. And I can remember many nights actually putting on Angel Dust in the middle of the album and letting it run through and then finally falling asleep during Midnight Cowboy. So I can remember a friend of mine in college making a, a mixtape. And don't worry, he wasn't trying to woo me or anything like that. But the tape had a bunch of upbeat songs, something, you know, sometimes including metal. But he he always knew how to end the mixtape. It was usually with like a heartfelt, mellow song that I may never have heard before, but maybe lost my mind the first time I was introduced to it. And I always pictured my friend just laughing as I was sitting in my car listening while he was trying to picture me, he always made listening to one of his mixtapes an experience. And my close circle of friends growing up, we were all convinced he truly transformed making mixtapes into an art form. And he knew how to capture that perfect mood and feeling. And I think Faith No More did the same thing with Midnight Cowboy. This track, I think, just sums up the complete randomness of this album, but it peacefully shifts you off into what I like to call that that good night. It, it does. Uh, for me, in a way, the the album finishes at the end of Jizz Lover, and then this is your your little lullaby, I guess. That, well, after your first listen of the album, you've got that thousand yard stare where you try and process just what happened, and this <laughs> brings you back to sanity, maybe. But I love all of the covers that they've always done right throughout their career. And even midway through songs, um, they will, Midlife Crisis is a prime example. When they're playing it live, they'll go and cover things like uh, Rick Astley, New Kids on the Block, right. Gaga, Tears for Fears, just ridiculous stuff. And in fact, even on the album, the intro to Midlife Crisis has got Simon and Garfunkel's sample in the intro. Uh, Cecilia, if, if you can remember that song, right? They do, absolutely. Um, and then when they did their second coming to it, when they got back together, uh, do you know the song that they opened with in most of their most of their sets, Greg? Have you heard about this? No. So this, I'm in a remember I'm in Helsinki, surrounded by metalheads. Everyone's wearing black, and they come on stage and they're wearing beautiful white sort of lounge suits, um, almost like really bad Grimsman at a wedding or something like that. Mike Patton comes on stage using a Zimmer frame to hobble on. And I'm like, all right, this has got to be super heavy. That the Zimmer frame's getting thrown away in a second. But they covered a 1970s song called uh, Reunited by Peaches and Herbs, which is very croony lounge music. So they played the entire song start to finish, true to the original. And I was just surrounded by so many very confused teenage metalheads in Finland. But I was like, this is awesome. It's just <laughs> them completely defined expectations again. And then they launched into something super heavy for the second song. I can't remember what it was, but um, I love the way they are not afraid to mock themselves and mock the audience, what they expect. Yeah, it's almost like they're out to shock their audience and they do an amazing job. And I think that's what keeps me interested. You know, I go back to Pink Floyd and one of the things that really just pulled me in like a magnet when I first heard them, when I first heard their early stuff was just how weird it was and how dark it sounded. And then you'd hear this 
keyboard. And then it would all of a sudden just mix into this beautiful godlike sound where I literally was like, oh my gosh, this is this is what heaven must feel like. I mean, it just, <laughs> I'm getting a little dramatic here, but I mean, that's what music does to me. It's strange, it's melodic. I think it's beyond strange, but it's it, that's what I love about it. So as the 90s started to you know pass and the 2000s came, the band had some minor lineup changes. So as we talked about earlier, Jim Martin, from my understanding, he was actually fired. Uh, I believe it was in 1993. And I heard the story was apparently he was fired by a fax. Rumors floated around actually that Jim had a problem with Roddy's homosexuality, but Roddy's actually been quoted in interviews to say that that's not true. But uh, is being fired by uh, by fax, is that a, is that a true story? <laughs> well, um, much the same way they started Faith No More and they got rid of the man, they were all kind of like, oh, we don't want to be part of this anymore. Um, Jim Martin, by the way, every time he met anywhere near media and was talking about Angel Dust, absolutely panned it he was telling them it was terrible what they were doing and whilst the band uh, is often really self-deprecating um they were getting pretty annoyed because they were trying really hard to do something different and jim was being unresponsive during the recording process and it was hard to get hold of afterwards um so they fired him by fax because they kind of had to but they, they were thinking of actually doing what they'd done earlier is just dissolving the band and then maybe reforming with people who actually wanted to be part of what they wanted to do. I do have a soft spot for Jim. I feel sorry for him. He, would, he brought a great sound that they didn't necessarily want. More than happy with the replacement though. So replacements that have been in there since then. When this album was released, the press was very divided. Uh, so Kerrang! magazine, they gave it a pretty bad first review, but then later went on to uh, judge it to be their album of the year. So uh, I think there it is something go. that does take a few lesson, uh, lessons to get in there. And there were at least half a dozen music publications, notable music publications around the world that did declare this album to be their album of the year. But in the US, the reception was a little bit more mixed, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Despite really my lack of hooking on to their late 90s albums and beyond, I think, would it be safe to say, Joe, the band really kind of switched things up on, on every album? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, uh, Evidence <laughs> is one of my favourites and it's another song that is basically lounge music. I wore out a VHS tape watching that when I was at university. Um, <laughs> I crashed the car trying to change the CD track. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I tell the insurance company what I was doing, yeah, um, to, purely because I wanted to listen to Evidence and it's so far apart from most of the heavy sounds that you'll hear on something like Angel Dust. So, yeah, the, all of their albums are are quite unique, have their own feel to them. In fact, Kerrang, if we just go back to their reviews on Angel Dust, they didn't just call it Album of the Year, they called it the most influential album of all time. <laughs> so that's a hell of an accolade. Hell of an um, accolade. Somebody maybe slightly less influential, I think it was like Entertainment Weekly or something like that, called the album possibly the least commercial follow-up to a hit, hit album ever. So yeah, I think mainstream was really going to struggle on it first couple that's of a great district that's a great description i mean they definitely deserve credit for switching things up they could have pleased their fans and stuck to the script but instead they changed their sound for the most part on pretty much every album 
and they didn't ever feel the need to put pressure on themselves and follow up each record with the same format. So just amazing. I mean, for those of you listening right now, if it, at this point by the, by this podcast, you're, you're not intrigued or interested. Uh, if you haven't really listened to Faith the more, I mean, if this doesn't do it for you, I don't know what's going to, you might as well just shut it off. Um, now the band reunited a few times over the last 20 years and as you were saying, Joe, most recently without guitarist Jim Martin in, I think it was 2019. And they were actually scheduled to do a tour in 2020, but had to move everything to, to 2021 because of COVID-19. I think it's just pretty cool to know that today they're still making music and they're still touring around the globe. And I, I'm looking forward to the day when I can see them again. Yeah, I'm very jealous. They're about to play some dates in the US. I'm stuck in Singapore and uh, whilst I can get to the US, uh, because of my visa situation here, there's a strong chance I wouldn't get back into Singapore. And if I did, I would have to quarantine for a couple of weeks and blah, blah, right. blah, everyone knows the deal. But I had tickets for their shows for the last two years when they were rescheduled in Australia and New Zealand. And I had flights booked to travel around Australia and then around New Zealand to see them as many times as I could. Uh, finally in a position as an adult to be able to do something like that with my favorite band. And then of course I've been rescheduled and rescheduled, but as a New Zealander, I was very excited when they did announce those dates, they put on their website, a picture of a mountain and then just a, a date that they were going to release information or a countdown or something. But that mountain is actually uh, Aoraki, which is New Zealand's highest peak. Oh, beautiful. Um, so, so I knew they were coming to New Zealand. If that was going to be their picture, I knew they were coming back down under. So I'll get, I'll get to see them as soon as I can. You might get to see them before I do. It looks like their next show is in three nights from now in St. Louis, Missouri, at the St. Louis yeah. Music Park in Maryland Heights, Missouri, right outside, of, right outside of St. Louis. So for those people that are listening in that area, if you catch it by then, uh, but if not, I'll put some more tour dates up. Uh, you can obviously go to their website, but I'll put some tour dates up on my albumreview.net website as well. And I'm also going to put Adrian Hart's um, book, The Small Victories, or it's called Small Victories. That'll be up in my bookstore as well. And that's a, uh, a biography of the band that actually I have to thank Joe for, um, for bringing that one to my attention. And I'm actually going to purchase it and read it after this, but I didn't want to read before this because I really, I'm really looking to Joe for some of the deeper knowledge, which he has provided a ton of <laughs> already. So as we're starting to kind of wrap things up a little bit here, we talked a little bit about some of the success of Angel Dust. Joe mentioned actually a lot of it. It did pretty well around the world. And Joe, keep me honest here. It, it actually experienced, like you said, stronger sales in other countries as opposed to the US, which we talked about earlier. And in less than three months after its release, it went gold selling 500,000 copies in the US, but then sales kind of dropped. Uh, in the US and the album was generally considered a commercial disappointment compared to the real thing. But in the UK and other countries, Angel Dust actually outsold the real thing and went on to sell worldwide more than 3 million copies. And I think that that number is even higher. Do you have any numbers on that at all, Joe? Yeah, those numbers you said are fairly accurate as far as I understand them. So um, I think if I remember correctly, in the rest of the world, Angel Dust has sold more than the real thing. And in the US, it's, it's the other way around. Uh, part of the reason they struggled with commercial success in the US, in their early days, they were touring and it was somewhere around maybe Buffalo or Rochester, somewhere up in there. 
and they played a gig and they were just trying to get on their uh, their tour bus and go to the next place, you know, get some sleep. And the promoter's like, you have to come to this after party put on by the local radio station because they're, you know, sponsoring all the concerts or whatever. And this is how you're going to be played in the Northeast. You know, these this company owns all of the rock radio stations in this part of the country. They didn't want to go, but they were told, yeah, just turn up, have one drink, a couple of photos and leave. And then when they got there, there was a, a band playing covers, you know, rock covers or whatever, and shots and girls in bikinis, just the stereotypical sort of jock rock sort of thing, which is really not Faith No More scene. Right. And so they decided, they got arm wrestled into going up and playing a song on stage, which was not part of the deal when they agreed to wow. come. So apparently Mike Pat was fully like doing shots with the girls in bikinis and acting like a full frat boy. People around him didn't realise he was completely parodying them. You know, the, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when they, when they went on stage, uh, they, they grabbed the instruments of the band and everyone was like super excited. They played one note over and over and over and over <laughs> and the crowd laughed and then the crowd started getting angry and um, they just kept, <laughs> kept it up. And then some, someone in the crowd threw a beer bottle and it hit Mike Patton in the head, opened up his head. So he did a full baseball pitch wind-up with the microphone and threw it straight to the guy's face, I think knocked him over. And then Jim Martin, uh, uh, yeah, Mike Penn also pulled his pants <laughs> pants down, pants and underwear down, and was like crouched out on the stage, and Jim Martin stuck the neck of this guy's flying B guitar or whatever, or whatever he had, a Stratocaster or whatever, underneath, in between Mike's legs, which is when the band lost it and stormed back on stage to get their instruments off them. They had to make an exit out the back door and like be escorted onto the bus and get the heck out of there. But they'd been also chanting as the crowd was getting more and more wound up, basically whatever the name of the radio station is basically saying that they sucked. And since then they've never been played in the Northeast on commercial rock radio stations. So <laughs> they kind of <laughs> might be their own worst enemies there. I mean, I, that's an amazing story. I did not know that at all. I mean, the band was never hip to trends. I would say trends were more hip to them and they didn't give an F about any of that stuff. And they wanted to be honest with themselves and everyone around them. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm proud that I'm attracted to, you know, weird bands sometimes. And I thrive, as I was saying earlier, off of musicians doing something different. And I was at a concert only a few weeks ago. It was my first since COVID-19 restrictions kind of loosened. And the band of the evening played a song entirely in French. And I didn't particularly enjoy the song, but the whole time I couldn't help but be incredibly impressed that these guys were writing songs in French and performing them for a bunch of modern day, what I like to call hippies in a, in a parking lot. I think that takes guts. And I don't know a lot of other bands that, that do that, but I think Fake No More, that's, that's why I bring up this story. I think the same goes for Fake No More. I'm, I'm comforted by the memories that I have listening to them in the early 90s while cutting my grass and doing my school homework. I just remember thinking, man, no one is doing this right now and just needing to listen to more. So Joe, I don't know if you have anything else to add, but um, you know, I, I wanted to thank you for 
for joining me and, and telling these stories. These are things I didn't know. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners didn't know anything else about the band or about the album that, you know, I might've missed or you wanted to add. No, but uh, thank you very much for inviting me on. And I said from what you said, uh, a lot of what I've told you has come from that book, small victories. Uh, I'm not on his payroll, but it is a great read. If you're a music fan, um, then my I'm more fan. It's really fascinating. So if you can track that down, it's a really, really good read. And Bill Gould said, this book's great. I learned a lot about the band and I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's be honest. You were on the payroll for about 45 seconds that one night when you asked them if they wanted anything. They could have easily been like, yeah, can I get a, a yeah. beer and a scotch? And uh, can we get a, a towel too? Um, but this it, is not an official know. biography. So I don't think the fact that was getting a slice out of this book. So I meant I'm not um, on uh, Adrian Hart's payroll yeah oh interesting well like i said i'll have that up on my website as well albumreview.net you can check it out in the bookstore adrian hart's book small victories so joe again thank you so much man it was really a pleasure having you i know we went a little long this time but um it was worth it and this is one of the best albums i've heard and i'm proud to be talking to someone whose favorite band is Faith No More. I just think that's the coolest thing. And uh, I definitely will definitely have to hook up and do, uh, do another album again soon. Cool. Would love to. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. And thanks again to Joe Keats for joining me on part two of a two-part album review of Faith No More's fourth studio album, 1992's Angel Dust. I think we knocked that out of the park. If you guys are interested in any of the albums I've discussed in this or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews and interviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Lastly, I do want to hear from you guys, believe it or not. So please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you may have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram, join the mailing list, which is on the homepage of my website, or just keep refreshing your podcast feed. Okay, guys, thank you very much. Keep on listening, keep on reading, and keep on learning. trip down by the highway take a trip down by the highway take a trip down by the highway